The Securities and Exchange Commission recently proposed changes to its program for dealing with corporate whistleblowers. Since the Dodd-Frank banking legislation, whistleblowers received up to 30 percent of penalties the SEC collects when they exceed a million dollars. The program was trimmed back during the Trump administration. New proposed rules would return the program to its former state. For one view of what should be happening here, we turn to the co-founder and CEO of the banking and markets nonprofit advocacy group, Better Markets. His name is Dennis Kelleher, and he joins me now. Mr. Kelleher, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Tell us the background here. This rule netted more than a billion dollars for whistleblowers up into the Trump administration. Well, yes. In fact, it's really one of the most important and wildly successful rules in all of financial and economic regulation and policymaking. Many of your listeners will probably remember hearing about the Madoff Ponzi scheme. Madoff was a guy on Wall Street who ran a Ponzi scheme that ultimately was as big as $65 billion, costing investors billions of dollars in losses. And there was a whistleblower. This is back going up in the 10 years before 2008. A whistleblower kept going to the SEC saying, hey, Bernie Madoff's running a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and in fact, this person went in, the whistleblower went in repeatedly with documents and information showing how Madoff was a Ponzi scheme. And the SEC ignored him, if not belittled him. And although they occasionally went to look at what Madoff was doing, they never looked very hard until he turned himself in in December of 2008, when, as I say, the losses for investors were gigantic. And so when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in 2010, the law mandated the SEC to create an office of the whistleblower and mandated the SEC to pay awards between 10 and 30 percent of the monetary sanctions collected by the SEC to whistleblowers. They wanted to create a program that incentivized whistleblowers to tell the SEC about illegal conduct in corporate America and to provide concrete, specific, and independent evidence that led to legal proceedings against those people. And so this program was put in place to make sure that the Madoff Ponzi scheme whistleblower was never mistreated again. And it ran extremely well, this program, at the SEC from 2011 when the first rules were proposed until 2018 and 19, during which time, as you say, Tom, $5 billion, $5 billion with a B, and monetary sanctions resulted from the whistleblower program. And what did the rule change during the last administration actually propose? If I recall, it was a cap on how much a whistleblower could collect. Well, there were a number of changes. The first thing is it gave staff discretion of the amount of the reward, even though the statute mandated the amount of the reward. It capped it. It also limited recovery in what's called related actions. And frankly, it put up other hurdles to recoveries, including regarding the requirement of looking at so-called independent evidence. But overall, the particular changes, although a little technical, um, are technical, uh, the intent was clear. They wanted to send a message to whistleblowers that the SEC was not going to be as receptive to them as the statute required them to be. And they weren't necessarily returning to the bad old days of when Madoff was ripping people off, but it was clearly signaling the SEC was not going to be as welcome to whistleblowers as they were required to be. And was the effect then lower amounts paid to whistleblowers and or fewer whistleblower complaints coming to the SEC? Are there statistics here? So the statistics or the information that would indicate that happening 
is all confidential. One of the good things about this program, and it's mandated, we wrote it into the Dodd-Frank Act. I actually was a senior staffer in the Senate when Dodd-Frank was being considered and enacted and uh, played a role in a number of the provisions, including this one. And so it mandated confidentiality to protect whistleblowers. And so the only thing you get is information once an award is given, and you're told kind of that an award was given. You're not told who the whistleblower was or the action it's even related to. So it's an award was given and an amount. So you can't really tell. But more importantly, the Trump administration rule changes that were to work against the whistleblowers weren't done until 2020. And as soon as the Biden administration's SEC chief got into office early in 2021, he announced changes to the whistleblower program to restore it to its original intent. And then he proposed rules to fix most of what has to be fixed in the rulemaking process. Although he's, in our view at Better Markets, he still needs to do a little more. And I should say, Tom, uh, anybody who want, listening wants to know about this, we put out, Better Markets put out a report called the SEC's whistleblower program, a $5 billion success story where we detail how well this has worked. And importantly, this hasn't worked just well for whistleblowers. This has been enormously rewarding to ripped off investors. And in fact, more than $1.3 billion has been returned to investors as a result of whistleblowers. And equally important, whistleblowers do not get paid one dime from the taxpayers and they do not take any money from recovery for investors. They get paid out of what's called an investor protection fund, which is money from other enforcement actions that don't get distributed to victims. So this is a win-win-win program. It's a win for investors. It's a win for corporations that actually follow the law so that law-breaking corporations don't get away with it. And it's a win for whistleblowers. And that means it's a win for the public interest, which is why Better Markets has been a huge supporter of this program from the beginning and why we're pushing for the restoration of the original rules to make sure whistleblowers who, after all, take enormous risks by blowing the whistle mm -hmm. on their uh, corporate employers who are breaking the law. We're speaking with Dennis Kelleher. He's co-founder and CEO of Better Markets. So the rules now that are proposed by the SEC, do they in fact restore the program to the way it was at its inception? Well, in our view, they go a long way. We would say they restore somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 or 80 percent. And they do address um, the most important rollbacks and limitations put in place by the Trump administration. But at Better Markets, we'd like to see them restore the rules entirely to the way they were before. It's actually under consideration by the SEC now. They propose new rules, as I say, that mostly roll back the old rules. They asked for comment on whether or not they should go further. Better Markets and others have commented on that proposed rule, which is currently under consideration by the SEC. And we hope in the not-too-distant future, they will finalize those rules and restore it entirely. I should make it clear to your listeners, though, Tom, if anybody is, you know, has information, specific information about illegal conduct by their employer, they should not hesitate for a minute to contact the whistleblower office at the SEC directly, or there's a variety of lawyers now who specialize in handling whistleblower complaints with the SEC, because this SEC, since the Biden administration came in and since 
SEC Chair Gensler got there. This SEC has open arms for whistleblowers and is going to treat them with the respect that they deserve and are required to under the law. And they will be rewarded if they provide independent, specific information that, in fact, leads to a legal proceeding and a recovery of more than $1 million. What about the retaliation that can happen by organizations, corporations, against whistleblowers in the meantime? Because sometimes these cases take years to actually resolve. Well, that's right. It's a good question, Tom. There's a couple of answers. Number one is it's against the law to retaliate against an SEC whistleblower. And the SEC has taken action against corporations who have retaliated against whistleblowers. And they face an extremely severe sanction if they are found to have done that. But the biggest protection is, as I referred to earlier, Tom, the statute requires, and the SEC has been excellent at this through the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration, they have been excellent at following the confidentiality requirements put in the law for the SEC to protect the identities of whistleblowers. So the entire structure is meant to, on the one hand, incentivize whistleblowers to come forward and reward them, and on the other hand, to try and protect them to the greatest extent possible so that retaliation doesn't happen. And finally, on those occasions when the whistleblower may be identified by an employer, if there is retaliation, the SEC will take action against them. So this really then changes a lot of procedures for the SEC staff itself and might incentivize them to go after those, as you call them, other enforcement actions, because that's the cash pot for the whistleblowers. Right. And look, the job of the SEC, and you know, we are fortunate to have thousands of people working at the SEC who are hardworking and dedicated and frankly working often under what can generously be described as, you know, suboptimal conditions. So they are, as I say, the entire enforcement division that dedicates their life to rooting out illegal conduct and going after, you know, wrongdoers in the securities markets. And they all recognize the importance of whistleblowers and how incredibly decisive they are, because frankly, many illegal actions simply are not visible to the public or to the SEC. And they're only known to insiders. And that's why this program is so important. This is evidence and information on lawbreaking that would never come to the attention of the SEC or prosecutors because it's all inside. And that's why it's so important for the SEC to not just follow the law, but to work hand in hand and welcome whistleblowers so that illegal conduct that would otherwise go undiscovered is not only discovered, but prosecuted. Dennis Kelleher is co-founder and CEO of Better Markets. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information in that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, 
Welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.